Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Monday Madness. I'm Tavis Killian, here on behalf of Rare Petro on this glorious morning that is the 9th of August. The Olympics has ended, and I enjoyed them this year. I had a buddy that particularly enjoyed the men's 3x3 basketball championship tournament. He described it to me as a Monty Python sketch, which I was incredibly skeptical about. After reviewing it, he was definitely right. Broken shoes, broken ankles, ripping threes from way out that would just airball. I definitely recommend giving it a peek as you will spend the whole game asking yourself, is this real? But I know you didn't come here to listen to me critique the greatest athletes in the world from the comfort of my padded desk chair. You came for the biggest events in statistics and oil and gas, and we're going to get into it. Let's get the tough stuff out of the way. WTI is at $66.64 right now and came dangerously close to touching 65. Last Monday, I said how it is possible prices will go back up, but we'll have to focus on the long term. Now, I didn't expect prices to fall from there as they were in the mid $71 range, yet here we are after a full week of downward price action. Again, focusing on the long term is the best way to navigate this as Rare Petro has spent dozens of hours explaining dozens of factors that will likely push WTI and other oil benchmarks in general even higher. Don't forget that even in mid-July, we saw prices this low before they climbed back up to $74. The biggest factor pushing these prices down right now is COVID. The new Delta variant that cropped up a couple of weeks ago is spreading its way across East Asian countries and scaring many people. Beijing health authorities said all large-scale exhibitions and events will be canceled through August. It is incredibly likely that we will see more travel restrictions and lockdown mandates from certain countries and even some U.S. states. This will absolutely decrease the demand for oil, but remember, companies aren't drilling as many new wells as they have in the past. They're paying down debt or extending maturities and making use of their remaining duck wells. If anything, another global response to COVID could just pull the slingshot back even further. Soon enough, it will have to let loose and launch that price even higher. So please be patient, my friends, because there are definitely better days ahead. If you remember last week's episode, we saw the rig count decrease by three, which was the biggest drop of the year. Fortunately, that left us with nowhere else to go but up. We saw a total of three rigs going up last week, leaving us with a net change of zero. As far as the major basins go, the Ardmer Woodford, DJ Niobrera, and Granite Wash basins each gained a rig. State by state, Wyoming dominated with three new rigs, bringing their total from 13 to 16, and Texas and Cali both lost one rig. Texas is fine as it still has 229 rigs, but California's total has now dropped to five, tying it up with the state of Alaska. The types of wells being drilled are dominantly horizontal, which shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Not a whole lot else to say about this statistic, so let's be patient and see what happens next week. Lastly, of course, is the inventory report. Last week's episode of Thirsty Thursday featured a recipe for an old-fashioned cocktail, so head to www.rarepetro.com to make one for yourself and follow along with the figures. If you missed it, here's a quick recap. The EIA predicted a 3.1 million barrel drawdown. They were only half a million barrels off, if we were looking at the absolute value of the results. The resulting build was actually 3.6 million barrels. This is 1.5 million barrels greater than the build we witnessed two weeks ago, so hopefully this isn't the beginning of an established trend. The API expected a similar drawdown of 2.9 million barrels, but they were a little bit closer to their estimate. They reported a teeny tiny drawdown of almost 900,000 barrels. In far better news, gasoline inventory saw a 5.3 million barrel drawdown on the week. If 
this trend continues through next week, it is likely we will set new five-year lows. Prices are on a mad dash to the top as they increased 2.4 cents per gallon in just a week. This puts gas at more than $1 more expensive than it was a year ago. Gasoline, that is. Soon, it will be more cost-effective to replace your car with a steam engine and power it with actual dollar bills. Overall, very mediocre week. Prices fell, a few rigs went up, and crude built a bit. Strangely enough, the best news was the gasoline drawdown, so celebrate the small wins when you can, even if it pushed those prices higher. Next, we've got a few news stories to get into. So last week, I talked about an Israeli-owned tanker, Mercer Street, that was attacked with one-way explosive drones. Pretty much everyone agreed that the attack came out of Iran. Tensions were already high, but a tanker carrying bitumen was the target of a hijacking attempt in the Gulf of Oman just a few days later. This tanker was instructed to travel to, you guessed it, Iran. In an interview broadcast, the Israeli defense minister was asked if he was ready to attack Iran. He simply replied, yes. When Iran's foreign ministry spokesman heard about this, he tweeted, in another brazen violation of international law, Israeli regime now blatantly threatens hashtag Iran with military action. Such malign behavior stems from blind Western support. We state this clearly. Any foolish act against Iran will be met with decisive responses. Don't test us. I still can't believe countries communicate like this on Twitter. Regardless, this could just be a result of individual groups or the old president leaving office. New President Ibrahim Raisi was sworn in. Hopefully he takes a position on recent events involving energy. This could be the president that negotiates a deal with the U.S. regarding our oil sanctions and their nuclear programs. Tensions are high, and Israel has had its hands full with Palestine, so I really hope no fighting breaks out with Iran. I think we've spent enough time outside of the country, so let's bring it back to the U.S., or more specifically, its rural parts. While developed areas and metropoli... Metropolises, not sure of the plural there, continue to receive funding and incentives that fuel the energy transition, the small communities of the U.S. are falling behind. Electric co-ops serve some 42 million people in the Midwest, like those in my home state of Iowa. Unfortunately, they sourced 32% of their electricity from coal in 2019, which was higher than the national average of 23%. Some reports believe that this is because they have little to no incentive to transition. Co-ops do not pay federal income tax, which, in turn, makes them ineligible for renewable tax power credits. They also don't have the ability to raise equity to finance new projects because they're not directed by a board or private investors. Rather, they are owned by the customers directly. Sometimes, those same customers have strong ties to the coal industry, and that is why we saw so much power generation from that hydrocarbon. This has caused co-ops to start looking in two directions. They can either maintain the status quo or challenge it and seek to implement more green power generation. Chris Riley is the CEO of wholesale electricity trader Guzman Energy. He told Wall Street Journal that it's not as simple as clean versus dirty. It's a question of hurting small local economies. And I have to say, I agree with Mr. Riley. This almost to me seems like one of the purest forms of a free market. Enough people decided there was a need for electricity in a small area, so a co-op emerged to charge those customers for the service with no government intervention in the form of tax breaks or fundraising. This resulting system may not be able to survive in energy transition, nor would the customer base want it. In this situation, it's incredibly likely that the costs would be passed down to consumers, because who else would it go to? Rural communities would maybe push back on that, as an energy transition would threaten the amount of money they have to spend on everything else. 
While this is certainly an interesting problem within the United States, it raises a question in the context of the rest of the world. Not everywhere in the world is a New York City, Beijing, Tokyo, or Paris where there's a large population and expendable government budget. If small communities that don't have access to tax credits or subsidies are asked to switch to more renewable energy sources, how are they going to finance it? What incentives will be provided if it comes as a cost to already struggling people? The developed world is in on the conversation, but there are a couple of billion people who could directly benefit from natural gas energy if they didn't have energy security already. Natural gas is cheap, abundant, and quite frankly, green technology struggles to exist in situations where tax credits and subsidies are not afforded. Just some food for thought. But that is all we have for this episode. I know this week wasn't super thrilling with less than ideal statistics and news stories with grim implications for the future, but I'm sure you learned something. If you did learn something, don't just click that follow button. Load up a couple of charges and perf it. That way you will know when a new episode comes out and you'll have the opportunity to learn more about the industry you are passionate about. Until we release something new, go to www.rarepetro.com to find a massive backlog of content that will keep you busy for quite some time. Thanks again for tuning in, and until we see you next time, take care, everybody.